0: Hello and welcome to Switch Your Money On from Hargreaves Lansdowne. I'm Susanna Streeter, I'm the Senior Investment and Markets Analyst here at Hargreaves Lansdowne. And I'm with Sarah Coles, our Senior Personal Finance Analyst. So, Sarah, it is our first podcast of 2022. Thanks to everyone who's joined us. And I'm secretly hoping that with so many people apparently isolating right now, having watched every TV programme on the iPlayer or Netflix, they might switch to podcast
1: perhaps. So if that's you, you're very welcome. It's definitely me at the moment. I think I've probably completed Netflix over Christmas. In fact, my New Year's resolution should probably be to watch less telly or maybe to eat less chocolate.
0: Well, for me, it's definitely eat less cheese and that will help the bank balance as well. I think I've spent a small fortune on the delights of the deli. I've become addicted to manchego, it seems, and stinking bishop, which had to lurk outside our back door given its particular pungency. I'm sure that's
1: much nicer than it sounds. <laughs> but yes, I mean, January's, it's all about belt tightening and in more ways than one, because we're also wrestling with rising prices and taxes at the beginning of this year. So in this episode of the podcast, we'll be talking about the big squeeze and how it's affecting our pockets and our investments and how we can build our resilience to withstand the pressure in an episode we're calling Surviving the Big Squeeze. Yes we'll also be talking
0: to Chris Hill CEO of Hargreaves Lansdown about the launch of the HL Savings and Resilience Comparison Tool which is designed to explore the pressures people are under and the risks to their finances. So hello Chris or welcome to the podcast.
2: Hi thank you. It's great to be talking to you.
0: So much to talk about. Uh, so we're really looking forward to having a longer chat a little bit later in the show. Plus of course Sophie Lundiates, our senior equity analyst will be looking at what the big squeeze means for companies and some of the names that might actually benefit from consumers trying to cut costs.
3: Hi, yes, it's definitely going to be a mixed picture over the next couple of months. Some retailers could really be feeling a pinch, um, but there are actually others that could be benefiting from customers wanting to cut down their monthly bills, so definitely not all in the same boat.
1: Thanks, Sophie. I'm sure there'll be plenty of interesting ideas in there. Plus, Emma Wall, our head of investment research and analysis, has been speaking to Sebastian Lyon, who's manager of the Troy Trojan Fund, about multi-asset investing and when it comes into its own. And of course, we have our quiz. So Susanna tells me she's been digging out some nuggets about inflation through the years. And I've been swatting up this time because I am determined not to put in such an abysmal performance this time round. Yes, it may be dry January, but we've got the
0: pub quiz for you from the comfort of your own home or car or dog walk. So stay tuned for that and we'll have to see if you can improve on your performance, Sarah. But first, let's take a look at just what is set to put our finances under pressure at the start of this year. Inflation isn't going anywhere fast, it seems, and is
1: of increasing concern, isn't it, Sarah? Yeah so so at the start of this year there was a survey of economists by the Times and most of those economists estimated it would be over 6% this year and a significant minority said it could be even higher So the the crunch is really going to come in April when energy prices finally feed through into much higher bills for those who are on the energy price cap. And there's been loads of speculation about where prices are going to end up, but they are expected to at the moment to rise about half. And it's not just energy prices. So the energy crisis has pushed up the price of oil, which means things like filling up at the forecourts got more expensive. And of course, on top of that, you get the supply chain issues that have brought things like the highest fresh food inflation in a decade and a 10% hike in IKEA prices. So you can see from that just exactly how widespread the problem is. And one of the interesting things that looks like it's going to happen this year is about wages. So they have been rising fast enough to keep pace with inflation. But the Resolution Foundation's forecasting that for much of 2022, we could see them actually falling once inflation's taken into account. And while it means we need to consider cutting back, it's also going to affect our investments, isn't it?
0: Yeah, I mean inflation not only risks reducing the value of your savings, but investments have to work that bit harder. Most investors aim to increase their long term purchasing power to get give them the financial firepower for future spending. Inflation can put this at risk because investment returns have got to keep up first with the rate of inflation in order to increase real purchasing power. And for companies, inflation is a concern for all sorts of reasons. Increasing prices of raw materials, energy, transport supply chain delays and higher labour costs can eat into margins and profits unless firms have enough pulling power to be able to pass on price rises to customers. Many will be swallowing higher prices for now, with incremental price rises likely down the line. So if consumers feel they have less money to spend, if inflation outpaces wages, the risk is that they'll spend less on big ticket items, purchases that can be delayed like furniture and fashion or cameras and consoles. Or they might downgrade to cheaper versions sold by rival companies. I'll have a chat with Sophia, our senior equity analyst, about this a little bit later. But of course, the other squeeze investors will have to navigate is a tax pressure, including the risk of higher dividend tax.
1: Yeah, so the freezing of the tax thresholds and the rise in national insurance in April is what we hear a lot about, because that's going to touch millions of people. But for investors with significant investment portfolios outside ISAs, there's also the risk they'll pay more in dividend tax. Because in April, this is going up 1.25 percentage points. And that applies to all dividends after the first £2,000. So it's going to mean it's more important than ever to make sure your investments are sheltered in things like ISAs and pensions where possible. So how it works is that all adults have a £20,000 ISA allowance to take advantage of this tax year. And money in an ISA is free from further UK tax, including dividend tax. So if you haven't used your ISA allowance this year, it's well worth considering. If you've got too much in investments to shelter it all inside an ISA, married couples and those in civil partnerships can transfer investments without a tax charge. So they can actually use £40,000 of allowances each year between them. Of course, as ever, it's important to point out that the tax rules can change and the benefits will depend on your individual circumstances.
0: And if this isn't going to cover you, you could also consider prioritising those investments paying strong dividends within an ISA and those focused on capital growth outside the tax wrapper where you can take advantage of capital gains tax allowances each year. Although because tax is a really complex area, you should seek advice if you're not sure. But it's certainly clear that the big squeeze is going to test our finances to the limit. And Whether we can get through this latest test really does depend to an enormous amount on just how resilient our finances are to begin with. So let me bring in Chris Hill now, CEO here at Hargreaves Lansdowne. Chris, you've just launched the HL Savings and Resilience Comparison Tool. Can you talk us through what exactly this is?
2: The ultimate aim of the barometer is to help people improve their financial resilience, something that HL has been doing for over 40 years. But with this, we're going one step further. It measures the financial resilience of the nation, but it also breaks that down into different regions and different groups of people. It means you can look at your area or people in the same boat as you and not only understand how resilient those groups are, but also identify the areas in which you're doing well and those where you might need to look more closely at your finances. We're hoping that this helps to highlight areas of concern for people and also those policymakers and regulators who make the decisions which affect how we save and invest.
0: Yeah, because there is so much concern out there right at the moment, isn't there? And lots of scratching of heads to decide what to do about it. Just tell me how this comparison tool actually works.
2: Well, when we think of financial resilience, we think of the building blocks of financial security. The five pillars of resilience, which are controlling your debts, protecting your family, saving for a rainy day, planning for later life and investing to make more of your money. To get a full understanding of how people are faring within each of these areas, we partnered with Oxford Economics, who brought together 17 data points from a number of official data sets across these five pillars. The data is then pulled together to provide a really robust and full picture of people's finances, which you can see using the comparison tool on our website. We've also built Five to Thrive, which is a resource for educational support. Based around these five pillars, so that once an issue has been highlighted, people can then take steps to improve their financial resilience. We're sharing the results with policymakers, regulators, debt charities, and other organisations, because there's some really great work out there measuring resilience, but most of it has looked at these problems in isolation. So by bringing these metrics together for an overview of people's situations, the whole becomes bigger than the sum of its parts. It's a big piece of research, but can you talk us through some of the initial findings? Part of this is about tracking the state of the nation as a whole when it comes to resilience. So this is a line in the sand, and we'll revisit the findings every six months to look at how resilience is changing. Taken overall, the findings show that during the pandemic, on average, people's resilience increased. But this average masked a big divide between the people who were able to save more because their outgoings fell and those who lost income who faced bigger challenges. Breaking it down into how different groups are faring throws up very few surprises. So those on higher incomes, those in the southeast, older people and homeowners all tending to fare better. But it's when you delve more into the detail of how different groups fare against each of the pillars that you get some more unexpected findings.
1: So then in in terms of this detail, there were some surprises around higher earners, weren't there? This was something
2: really interesting in the initial findings because the barometer identifies the Achilles heels of groups that might assume that they're completely resilient because they've got a high income, lots of savings, but they've got weaknesses elsewhere in their finances. By looking at their position in the round, it overcomes assumptions people might make because they don't feel that resilience is a problem. So, for example, it identifies that even amongst high income families, a surprising number don't have enough rainy day savings or aren't on track for pension savings for their time of life. Meanwhile, almost half don't have enough life cover to protect their families. They're also exposed to variable rate borrowing, which could leave them vulnerable at a time of rate rises.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And that is one thing to really watch, isn't it? Particularly uh, with inflation riding high Thanks so much, Chris, for talking to us. It's really interesting to see how this does affect investors who might not think resilience is something that touches their lives. And I'm really looking forward to seeing how this all develops.
2: Yes, well, I'd love to come back on the programme and talk about more of the findings as they emerge. You know, as I said, this is a line in the sand, but it's becoming very, very interesting looking at different groups and how they work and all of these measures of resilience. So I think there'll be some interesting things to come back and talk about. So yeah, thank you for the invitation in advance
0: looking forward
1: to it we might even subject you to our quiz so be warned chris <laughs> i hope you have more luck than i do in the quiz <laughs> so yeah the big squeeze is going to affect us all but for our investments the picture will be more mixed because there's going to be winners as well as losers so let's bring in
0: sophie lund yates our senior equity analyst here at hargreaves lansdowne who's been looking into the names that could possibly benefit from us all tightening our belts so sophie do you think this
3: is going to mean more of a shopping with the discounters then So... I personally love a discount retailer, regardless of economic rumblings. Bit tragic, but I actually had to self-impose a ban on going to home bargains down the road for me during lockdown. It was far too dangerous. But looking at the picture nowadays, the thing with inflation is that it means people's money doesn't go as far, and that starts to become noticeable in a monthly budget really quite quickly, especially the rates of inflation that we're seeing at the moment. And that is where a discounter really comes into its own. You know, if you feel like your paycheck is dwindling down to nothing much faster than you You are more likely to be motivated to travel to the out-of-town locations where the likes of B&M bargains are located. Um, But that said, it's not as cut and dry as this being purely positive news. There are some challenges that I think might be overlooked a little bit. People becoming more price conscious is a good thing. But these new customers are likely to want to buy essentials. Now, these are lower margin, even at the the discount names, or less profitable than the discretionary stuff. So things like homewares or the general kind of bric-a-brac that these places sell. Um, So we could see some margin dilution, or at least margins not climbing as much as you might assume if sales enjoy a spike. Um, The market seems to have taken some note of the remaining challenges though because the price to earnings ratio for for B&M is about 17 which is a bit lower than than the average. Uh, That said though 17 is not bad going for a retailer so there is clearly quite a lot of optimism as well. So in general it really is a mixed picture. Um, I would say that discount chains can probably expect more people to cross their threshold in in current conditions but I am reserving judgement on exactly what that's going to mean for the bottom line.
1: So it sounds like you've been busy shopping throughout all these lockdowns. But I guess even when we're tightening our belts, there is some shopping that we can't get away from. So we still need to do that weekly shop,
3: don't we? Exactly. So as much as I was doing my weekly, completely unnecessary trips to the places like Home Bargains, I was also, along with everybody else, doing my weekly food shop. And therein lies the resilience of all the grocers. It doesn't matter what's going on in the economy. We all need to eat. And while it's fair to say that customers may slip down the value chain if things get tough, um, by that I mean going to um, more of a discount option and perhaps start shopping at Aldi and Lidl when when they haven't before. You know, we've seen um, some really impressive results from Aldi recently. Um, but that doesn't mean that that's, as, that's all it takes. Um Tesco could be worth attention because of that, in my opinion. So unlike Waitrose or even Sainsbury's, Tesco isn't seen as an expensive option for food shoppers. Um, It's done a lot of work on its proposition to be perceived as high quality and not just good value, which is something that some of the other grocery chains have failed to do, in my opinion. And when you look at things like the Aldi price match that Tesco does, it is directly taking on the German discounters. And, And so far that plan is working because it's still taking market share. Um, obviously, should caveat that this, you know, the time of recording, we haven't heard about um, Tesco's performance over Christmas and how, the, how they've shaped up. But, you know, I do have I'm quite optimistic there. Um, but building up a strong and well-rounded proposition. And by that, I mean, you're not just saying that you're the cheapest or the most premium means customers could be more likely to stick with you in tough times. Um, And, you know, let's not forget that Tesco has an enormous scale, which shouldn't be forgotten, which feeds into its very ambitious online delivery plans and building that out and becoming the best at digital within, within the mid-market space would, in my opinion, help it offset inflation-related dents to discretionary spending. Um, of course, I have to say that none of that is guaranteed, uh, and the amount being invested in building up capacity means that any missteps in, in that space would be judged very harshly by the market.
0: OK, thank you, Sophie. They're definitely going to be interesting ones to watch in the coming months. Now I'd like to bring in Emma Wall our head of investment research and analysis here at Hargreaves Landstand, who's been speaking to Sebastian Lyon manager of the Troy Trojan
4: Fund about multi-asset investing. Hi Sebastian. Hello Emma. We're here today to talk about diversification. It's a funny word. What does it mean?
5: The easy answer is it means not putting all your eggs in one basket. Investors have a tendency, if they're inexperienced, to put money into one particular stock or a very small number of particular stocks. And while that can sometimes go right, clearly, it can go wrong. By diversifying your portfolio, and by having probably at least 12 to 15 stocks to be diversified in various different sectors, but also into different asset classes, whether that be in bonds or commodities or whatever it might be, basically asset prices go up and down in different ways affected by different macroeconomic events. By diversifying, hopefully you are mitigating a lot of volatility and risk.
4: And you've touched on it there, but when diversification goes right, what does that mean for the long-term returns of investors, hopefully?
5: Well, hopefully it means that you manage to Get a return which is significantly less volatile. And actually, it should generate better long term returns because if you're undiversified, then your returns are likely to be extremely volatile. It means that the risk for an investor is that they could be whipsawed. So they could be emotional about the way that they go about investing. So markets plummet and they get depressed and they sell at the bottom and then markets surge and then, of course, they buy at the top. So by diversifying, you're less likely to make those schoolboy errors, as it were.
4: And it should, in theory, make it easier to get positive returns as well, shouldn't it? Because if your investment halves, it has to double in order to get back just to where you were, let alone put you in positive territory.
5: Well, absolutely. And this is what we've been doing with my farm for the last 20 years. Effectively, what we recognise is positive compounding is what really matters. What you don't want to have is those really nasty, stomach-churning drawdowns of the type that we saw during the financial crisis, and also the ones that we saw during COVID, when COVID first arrived in February and March of last year. And we saw markets plummet by 35% in the UK and the US. And so if you can mitigate those falls, you've got much less to make up when markets rally. And it also actually means that your clients are a lot happier with you and less stressed. And they're much more likely to hold longer term rather than panic. So if you can give less downside, you actually don't have to give the spectacular upside. You actually just have good risk-adjusted returns. But the key thing, as you say, Emma, is you don't have to double if you're down 50%. So the thing about market falls is actually you've got to take more risk once the market goes down in order to make back your returns. And, And that has a tendency for investors to actually take ever greater degrees of risk, which means probably losses are more likely rather than not.
4: Let's then talk about the practicalities of diversification, the building blocks that you might need to have a well-diversified investment portfolio. This is your bread and butter. This is what you do. You build multi-asset portfolios. So what does that mean?
5: Generally speaking, the initial building block and how we really generate most of the returns, and I would say actually over the last 20 years, well over 60% of the returns that we've generated for investors have been through the equity market. So the equities are the driver, if you like. The stock market's the way that you get most of your return. But there are ways of diversifying. You need to have effectively offsets, things that ultimately are going to go up or protect you when markets are volatile and particularly when markets are very weak, like they were during COVID in February and March of 2020. So you need other assets to do that. And historically, bonds have been very good. They've been what's called negatively correlated with the equity market. So i.e., when bonds go up, equity markets tend to go down and vice versa. So you've had this wonderful, over the last sort of 30 or 40 years, this wonderful sort of barbell, if you like, of equity and bonds offsetting one another. The problem with that is that these days that's much less likely to happen because yields on bonds are just so low. So you need to look for other asset classes which are going to diversify your risk. And we've had primarily three. The first is obvious, which is cash. And the good thing about cash is if markets go down, it gives you that protection. But also it gives you very importantly, uh, and much forgotten, it gives you that dry powder, which when markets go down, you can utilise and buy stocks cheaper. And that's exactly what we did a couple of years ago during the COVID falls. We had a lot of cash going into that. And so we invested about 20% of the fund's cash at or near the lows. The second thing is, instead of having fixed income bonds, we have indexed link bonds. Because we're increasingly worried about inflation. Effectively the bonds pick up that inflation which a conventional bond, a fixed income bond, will not do. And then also we have gold. Gold does very well in negative real interest rate environments. And let me just explain that. Effectively, positive real interest rates are when you are paid your money in the bank. You're paid more than the rate of inflation. Today, we live in a world, and have done really since the financial crisis, we've lived in a world of negative real rates, i.e. you haven't been able to earn more than the amount of inflation on your cash. And in those environments, gold does well as a sort of currency if you like, that can't be debased. Historically, it's done very well at protecting. And again, you know, during COVID and during the financial crisis, it was very, very useful insurance and actually cheap insurance. So it's a lot cheaper than using derivatives or buying market protection.
4: Now, of course, you don't have a crystal ball and and no outlook is certain, but we're at the beginning of a new year. How do you feel about the market outlook? And how is that affecting how you use those building blocks within your portfolio?
5: we're clearly coming through COVID. Having been a pandemic, it's now almost sort of becoming a permademic. We're getting used to it. So I think that growth should be reasonable this year as restrictions continue to come off. But having said that, markets have had a very good run. Since the lows in March, April 2020, uh, markets have run very hard. So if you like, Markets have run in anticipation of the reopening of the economy and things returning back to normal. And valuations are high. Stocks have been re-rated because interest rates have been cut and because, effectively, we've had a lot of QE in 2020, but through 2021 as well, quantitative easing, that is. Central banks have been very supportive of financial assets Now the economy might do well this year, but that doesn't necessarily mean that stock markets will do well. And generally speaking, when central banks are tightening, which they have begun to do, I begun to raise rates, the Bank of England uh, raised rates for the first time in a very long time in December, we think that there is actually reason to be a little bit more cautious. And throughout the second half of last year, we were actually reducing our equity exposure, having increased it a lot during the pandemic, we're actually reducing a little bit. So we've been, if you like, taking risk out of the portfolio. So while I think there's reason to be more optimistic about the economy, there's not necessarily a reason to be hugely optimistic about the stock market.
4: Sebastian, thank you very much. Thanks, Emma. But that was
0: Emma Wall, our Head of Investment Research and Analysis here at Hargreaves Lansdowne, who was speaking to Sebastian Lyon, manager of the Troy Trojan Fund all about multi-asset investing.
1: You're listening to Switch Your Money On from Hargreaves Lansdowne. And finally, it's time for the quiz. Susanna, please tell me you're not going to make me guess something like the price of a pint of milk 20 years ago or something.
0: No, not at all. In fact, it's the price of lager. (laughs) So Sarah, I hope you've kept a close eye on this over the years. I'm sure you have. At the moment, the average pint costs £3.94. pence, But how much did it cost when we toasted the new millennium
1: with a traditional pint back in January 2000? Oh, I should know this. Now, I, I mean, I feel like you picked an area in which I'm a specialist, but I have no idea. Um, I imagine it was about £2.50.
0: Close. It was one pound ninety five, So it has very nearly doubled since there. I think I'm going to give you that one. OK, I won't make you guess any more prices. Instead, we'll have a quick round of guess the inflation rate. So Which of these things saw prices rise the most in the year to November? Was it gas prices, petrol prices,
1: or the cost of ice cream? Oh, blimey. Well, gas and petrol have been all over the headlines, but maybe we just haven't noticed the price of ice cream. I mean, it's kind of been more like custard season recently. Uh, No, no, I'll tell you what, I'm going to go for gas.
0: I'm afraid not. You would think so, wouldn't you, with all the headlines that we've seen. And it's a particular pain point right now. But the answer is petrol prices, which are up 29.5%. That's just ahead of gas prices at 28.1%. And you'll be pleased to hear it's way ahead of ice cream at 9.1%. Okay, next one. Can you tell me which country announced annual inflation of 36% this month?
1: Oh, I know this one. So, this is Turkey, which it does. It actually sounds like an absolute nightmare.
0: Yeah, Turkey has had double digit inflation for a couple of years, but the latest surge is on the back of rather unconventional monetary policies that saw the country cut interest rates from 19% to 14% in an effort to try and avoid higher rates damaging the economy. But it appears to have fueled yet more inflation. So, finally. Let's get all this into perspective. Can you tell me who had the most severe hyperinflation and when?
1: I mean, the one that everyone talks about is the the Weimar Republic in Germany in the 1920s. I'm
0: afraid you're wrong again.
1: It was a time of
0: spectacular inflation. You're right, and prices were doubling every 3.7 days, but it wasn't the worst. That came in 1946 in Hungary, where prices were doubling every 15.6 hours when the government was printing money without any collateral and
1: the military started printing money too. Oh Goodness me, that, that just it sounds is a horrendous thought. To be fair, it's not enormously different to the amount of uh, pocket money inflation my kids are looking for.
0: <laughs> oh yes, pocket money is never enough apparently. But yet they never seem to want to take the option of hoovering for extra cash. I wonder why. Well, you did slightly better than last time. You got one right. Well, maybe two. I'm slightly disappointed in your lack of exact beer knowledge (laughs) that is all from us this time but before we go we do need to remind you that this was recorded on January the
1: 10th and all information was correct at the time of recording nothing in this podcast is personal advice so you should seek advice if you're not sure what's right for you Investments rise and fall in value so you could get back less than you invest and past performance isn't a guide to the future. Yes, this is not advice or a
0: recommendation to buy, sell or hold any investment. No view is given on the present or future value or price of any investment and investors should form their own view on any proposed investment.
1: And this hasn't been prepared in accordance with legal requirements designed to promote the independence of investment research and is considered a marketing communication. Non-independent research is not subject to FCA
0: rules prohibiting dealing ahead of research. However, HL has put controls in place, including dealing
1: restrictions, physical and information barriers to manage potential conflicts of interest presented by such dealing. You can see our full non-independent research disclosure on our website for more information. So all that's left is for me to thank our guests, Chris, Sophie, Emma and Sebastian, and our producer, Elizabeth Cotson. Thank you so much to you for listening as well. We'll be back again
0: soon. So if you enjoyed this podcast, please do let us know what you think and do subscribe wherever you get your podcast so you can get a fresh new episode in your inbox as soon as
3: it's ready. Goodbye.